Let's turn our attention to God's Word today. Um, you know, we, I, I, we were in New York City, just another brief story here. We were in New York City uh, just the last few days uh, celebrating uh, one of our kids, um, just Julia and I with him. And uh, we were seeing the sights, and uh, I, I casually observed as we were looking at the Chrysler building um, that I apparently had been thinking in my head all the time that that was the Empire State Building. Even though we had walked by the Empire State Building numerous times, the design of the Chrysler Building is what I had in my head for the Empire State Building. And maybe you're in the same boat. The, the Chrysler Building is the one that has those arches at the top that are, are kind of cool looking arcs. And it has up uh, on one of the upper floors, like 61st floor, I think, a bunch of eagles sticking out uh, with, I think they're made of some sort of non-rusting steel. Uh, but I, I just kind of liked that building. I thought it was attractive. And I had in my head that that was the Empire State Building. And I was corrected by seeing it in the flesh at a place that wasn't where the Empire State Building was. Um, but then the more I've thought about that over the last couple of days, I've been like, that's really bothering me. That I had those two mixed up, that I had in my head. I'd never seen them, you know, except in the movies. Um, really paid any attention to them uh, until just these last few days. And it, it, and it bothers me that it bothers me. Um, so <laughs> it bothers me definitely more than it should. And so as we look at God's Word today, uh, we're in Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, on, on our, our theme of, of Advent, of preparing for Jesus, of focusing on the birth of Christ. Um, I, I, I realize that what this passage is talking about is just that thing that I, I'm wrestling with, that really we all have a hard time admitting we're wrong, uh, and that it takes very often just sort of an eyewitness encounter to change our perspective when really the information has been there the whole time. But whatever is going on with us, as we look at this Advent text today, it essentially says... <laughs> We're all wrong, but God has come to make it right. If we will acknowledge that and, and see things from his perspective, that will be good news for us. To know that we are wrong, and he has come to make it right. So let's see here in this maybe familiar passage uh, at the beginning of Mark's gospel, Mark 1, 1 through 8. Of God's Word. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness Make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him and all of the people of Jerusalem. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and his diet was locusts and wild honey. And he was preaching and saying, After me, one is coming who is mightier than I, 
and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is God's word. Father, would you bless now uh, our eyes, our ears, our hearts, every aspect of our being. As we come to your word, would you work in us by your Spirit's power, because we come to your word trusting in Jesus' name. Amen. In the, in the mid-1800s, uh, did you know that more women died giving birth in the hospitals than had died at home giving birth? This was a, a deeply disturbing trend for, for many doctors. It was the beginning sort of of doctors and medicine and hospitals and those kind of things. But they were dying of a fever. And in one particular hospital in Vienna, Austria, they were dying at an alarming rate. And in a disturbing way, the, there were two clinics in this hospital. One of them had doctors and instruments and all those kind of things. And the other one was midwives, helping women give birth in the way that they had before, doctors. And the rate of fevers and the complications that followed in the doctor's and medical side was some five times higher than among the midwives. And one of the doctors, by the name of Ignaz Semmelweis, wanted to figure out what the problem was. Why, why was it the doctors appeared to be harming more women than the midwives? What, what could possibly explain it? They didn't know about bacteria. They, they didn't know about infections. That was it years away, decades away, before that would be understood in any appreciable way. But he tried different things. He watched you know, how the different ways were operating, how uh, things that happened. There, there was a priest who came through in the one side, and so you know, ringing a bell, and he thought, well, maybe that's just scaring the women giving birth you know, when someone would be sick or die. Say, so stop doing that. That didn't help any. And eventually, he, he stumbled upon the truth that it had to do with the instruments the doctors were using and with their own hands. That as they went from patient to patient, especially one who had died, they were passing along something. And, and Dr. Semmelweis didn't know that that was bacteria or anything like that. But he said, there must be something we're passing along. So what, what, if, what if we started washing the instruments and our hands with a chlorine substance, like we would say bleach, basically? Rates of infection and with fever went down. Deaths went down dramatically. And you know what happened to Dr. Semmelweis? He was fired. Because as he tried to get the doctors to wash their instruments and wash their hands, they felt like it was their fault. And they didn't want to take responsibility for having harmed so many. And they sort of did the, the highly educated version of stuff your fingers in your ears, right? They used their power and influence to run them out of town. Despite the positive effects. 
Now, Semmelweis was kind of a jerk about it. He would berate people and make them feel stupid. So that's not okay. But in the end, he, he died of sepsis in a mental institution. It's a terrible, terrible story of rejecting an obvious solution. We would say, wow, those doctors, what's wrong with them? You know, how could they possibly reject that? But we do the same thing, right? We reject what we don't want to hear. We reject when it seems like, you know, we get defensive when it seems like things are getting a little too close to home. It could be about something as silly as uh, having the Empire State Building and the, the Chrysler Building mixed up in our minds. That, that that would weigh on my heart at all is ridiculous. It's a sign of pride. What, what weighs on your heart? As, as someone just casually mentions an error, you know, maybe a, a typo in an email you sent or maybe something more significant about how you're actions don't line up with your words. None of us like to be wrong. We feel threatened by it. And, and, and if we have enough power, as part of the Christmas story shows us, right? if we have enough power, we, we can do tremendous harm. King Herod, we didn't focus on that passage today, but King Herod was a, a very scared man and would use his power to eliminate threats. He killed his own sons because he thought they would scheme against him. He killed his own beloved wife because he thought she was going to kill, again, kill, kill him, and he was paranoid. And then, as we read in Matthew 2, he killed many, many, many babies, trying to eliminate the threat to his throne. This is sadly part of our human nature. And the good news is that it's okay to be wrong. In fact, the good news is that when you understand that we're wrong, that God has provided a way for us to be right. That God has come to make it right. That is, as he says in verse 1, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then John starts preaching about uh, baptism and repentance and washing and cleansing and all of those things. And people are eating up that message as the Spirit goes to work. That's the good news. Like we have to have the bad before we believe the good. We have to have a diagnosis that's so obvious we can't deny it before we'll accept the medicine that seems harsh. So I want to unpack that a little bit more, this idea of the good news here from Mark chapter 1. And the first thing I want us to notice is that it is God's grace that He interrupts us repeatedly and graciously. God interrupts us because He wants us to notice what is most important. And we see that here in verses 2 and 3 of Mark's gospel. He says, As it's written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. Uh, is a conflation of a couple texts in the Old Testament that are tightly wound up, and the core of it is from Isaiah. There's also a piece from Malachi and another piece uh, from, I can't find it in my notes, from, from another section. But the core of it is this, this idea of one who will prepare the way for the one who is mighty, 
for the one who is God and yet seems to not be God. As it is God speaking, I'll send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. Verse 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Just the, the thing I, I want us to think about here is, and by the way, we're not going to dig deep and unpack all of the wonders of this passage. Okay, We're going to hit a few themes and maybe leave some questions for another day. But the one thing I want us to focus on in this part is this idea that more than 600 years before the one who would come before the one who was mighty, okay? Think about those hops, okay? More than 600 years before John the Baptist, who would come to be the one before the Messiah to prepare his way, God speaks. God says, this is what I'm going to do. God interrupts life and says, this is what's important. This coming of the Messiah, this coming of my servant is so important. I'm going to keep reminding you of it. I'm going to keep predicting it. I'm going to keep pointing it out. And in fact, when it gets even closer, I'm going to point it out more times that you would not miss it. It's that important. In fact, you know, as we trace back through Scripture, you could say that was part of God's message in Genesis 3, 8 through 15 that we heard read earlier. That God said in Genesis 3:15 that he would send the seed of the woman to crush the serpent's head. That that was part of this promise. And again, in Genesis 12, 1 and 2, God said to Abraham, I will bless you. And you will be a blessing to all nations through your seed. All the nations of the earth will be blessed. And he kept repeating that. That there is this sense of God continuing to, to repeat a message that he's already said. And that it seems it ought to be clear. And yet, he keeps doing it. I don't know about you, but it doesn't feel like nagging. It feels like something I need to hear. It's, it's, why, it's why we come and gather together every Sunday, because it's, we need to be reminded. Because there is so much noise in the world, especially around Christmas time. There's a lot of lights and beauty and wonder and a feeling that can be pretty good. And we still need this reminder which is kind of like a little tinge of darkness. It says it's, it's not always the way it seems. That it's good and yet it's, it's not as good as it could be. That we need to pay attention and notice and listen to what the Lord is saying. Because He's speaking for our good. He's trying to point out something that we need to hear. I remember it's been years since it, it was a big deal, but when my kids were really little, uh, I, I cultivated the skill of being able to see things in enough time to point them out to them. So, you know, we'd be driving along and I'd, I'd see a train, you know, and everybody, all kids like trains, right? Like, oh, 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 look, a train. 
and then figuring out how do I describe which side of the car it's on, all that kind of stuff, right? It's like, oh, here, here, here's train. Or Christmas lights. Or, ooh, look at old-fashioned car. All these kind of things. And, and I, I got to the point where I was, I was just in that mindset of, of, of pointing things out, and so I'd be in a car with a grown-up and pointing things out, which is kind of, thanks, Mike. I always like to see a hot rod. <laughs> It's just it was in, in my mindset of, of, of noticing things to then point them out because it's something I thought they wanted to see or needed to see. You know, that's, that's the sense of God pointing these things out. Not to berate and badger us or to nag us, but to say, listen, you, you need to pay attention to this. I know it interrupts what you're doing, but this is something that's really important, God says. Pay attention. And what he's doing is, as he's repeatedly and graciously interrupting, he's wanting us to notice something so that we would shift our perspective from what is primarily one of just all the horizontal stuff and busyness, right? To what's most important. To what really orients us to life. Which is, to, is him. If we look at verse 3. John comes as one, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Verse 4, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. I think it's important that this voice is crying in the wilderness. And there's different competing views of what the wilderness is a picture of. I mean, they're really there in the wilderness. Is it a place of kind of temptations and trials where Jesus is about to go? Uh, and even in Mark's gospel, is shorter, but it mentions it. Or is it a place of like a, a transition to something new and better as John is introducing a new era of forgiveness, the coming of the Messiah? Or as Moses led the people through the wilderness to then get to the promised land? And it seems like there's a mixture. Like anything else in the world, the wilderness is, is a place apart, and it's not all good and it's not all bad. It depends on how you embrace it, what you do with it. And in fact, here, there's this sense where God is shifting the perspective of people, and he's calling them out from their normal lives to focus on him, to reorient and reprioritize What's going on in their life? It's an interesting thing because I feel like we are living in a time where somewhat spiritually, but for the most part, just secular worky stuff, where it's been called the, the great resignation. Uh, I've heard people say the great reshuffle. There is something going on where people are adjusting their priorities and saying things like, I'm not going to put up with working in that way. Or saying, yeah, you know what, I'm just not ready to go back to work. Or whatever's going on there, it seems to me it's pretty clear that it's following on all of this shutdown of life and experience and busyness that God put every one of us, so to speak, in the wilderness for a season. And some folks are paying attention to that. And recognize, what am I all about? Why am I doing these things? What do I want to do? 
that's a really good place to be. And it's a place that sadly, I think, even as Christians, we don't enter into often enough and maybe haven't used to the best of our advantage in this season. You know, do, do, you, do you get away, at least mentally and notificationally? Do, do, you, do you shut down the devices and notifications? And, and do you not just read your Bible, which is great, but do you maybe sit and listen and reflect more than just checking off, okay, I read, I read. Do you prayerfully consider, Lord, what is going on? What do you want from me, Lord? You know, as we continue to come out of a pandemic situation, as we continue to relaunch and head out, you know, that's a great prayer I have for us as a church. What, what do you want from us, Lord? There seems to be a great opportunity. We can evaluate what, who we really are, what, what we're about. You know, we can do that personally. We can do that in our families prioritize what God says is most important, to reflect on it, to slow down. I would encourage you this Christmas season, if you can get some time off or away, to turn everything off. Maybe just sit there with the Christmas story from Luke 2. Just read it through a couple of times and ask the Lord, say, Lord, what what difference does this make in my life? What do you want me to do with this Jesus that you're showing to me? And be ready for a shift in your perspective. Because I think that's what God is about. He's graciously and repeatedly interrupting us. He'll even cause a shutdown of all of life pretty much, right? to get our attention, to get us to notice things, to shift our perspective. And what God wants us to see is that we need to change. There's always a place for us to change. There's, there's always some part of our heart that could worship and love Jesus a little better. There's always some part of our life that we could celebrate and praise God for a little bit more. There's always a place for a little more thankfulness. And so the language of John here of, of preparing the way for Jesus, John uses this language of confession and forgiveness. Look at verse 4 again. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him and all the people of Jerusalem and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. This language of repentance and confession and forgiveness, this, this language of change, essentially. You know, of the fundamental change that, that we make when we understand what God wants from us and that we've going, been going the wrong direction. That fundamental change is 180, right? And the problem is that we, we don't just make that once. You know, we have a tendency to go that way and say, okay, Lord, you want me to go this way. I'm, I'm repenting. I'm turning around. I recognize that, that, that you have what I need, which is the ultimate shift in perspective, right? Because before you realize that, you are acknowledging that you have 
what you need. That you don't need anything from anyone else. And all your stories about Jesus and all of those things are fine for you. I'm okay. And that works until you're not. That works until the diagnosis. That works until the addiction. That works until the brokenness. That works until your fall. It works until it doesn't work. And then you recognize you were wrong. And that's a crucial place. Because some of us recognize we're wrong and that we've done bad things. And we will either try to blame other people or our circumstances or we will continue down that path of wrong things to to numb the pain, to hide our hearts from the acknowledgement of it. When really what Jesus would have us to do is to say, I'm, I'm wrong. There's absolutely no excuse. There's nothing I can do to pay it back. And Jesus says, exactly. And the good news is, there's forgiveness. The good news is, There's power to set you free. The good news is there is acceptance and love because God knows better than you do what you've done. God knows better than you do the secrets of your heart. God knows it and says, I have sent my son to save you from your sins. That's why he is called Jesus, Savior. And it's a profound reality if we will acknowledge that and recognize that not only do we need to acknowledge that and turn from sin to our Savior, but that we need to be cleansed. We we need our hearts restored. We need to be born again. We need to have our hard hearts of stone replaced by hearts of flesh. We need to have our sin and shame washed away. And that is the language that John uses essentially here in verses 6 through eight, when he says he's clothed with camel's hair and he's wearing a leather belt around his waist, and his diet was locusts and wild honey. Verse seven, he was preaching and saying, After me is one who is coming who is mightier than I. I'm not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandal. He's that much better than me, that much higher than me, that much holier than me. I don't, I'm not even worthy to do anything at his stinky feet. I'm not worthy to take off his shoes. Wow. Verse 8 explains why. Because I baptize you with water, but he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That this one has the cleansing and the power and the hope and the forgiveness and the acceptance to give you what you most need need. Which I think is actually courage. Because I, as I think about pride, right, which seems kind of backwards, the pride that will keep us from admitting we're wrong, the pride that will keep us from listening to what others have to say, the pride that leads to harm is actually in a lot of ways a lack of courage. Because we are building up an outer shell so that people would think we're something that we're not. And the irony is everybody else can see it except for us. 
And it takes real courage to say I'm wrong. It takes real courage to say I'm sorry. It takes real courage to humble ourselves. And that's the gospel story. You know, here comes one who is so much more worthy, so much more holy, so much more powerful than John the Baptist that he doesn't feel comfortable bowing down to untie his shoes, right? And this one comes to walk among us. And he says to John, and the argument that they have at, at this baptism, which happens chronologically just after what we're reading, Jesus says it's, it's, it's necessary to fulfill all righteousness. I have to be identified with sinners, though I never sin as we see throughout the rest of it. Jesus doesn't literally say that, but he lives that. Without sin, this one comes among us and identifies with us with such courage. Think about the courage it takes to humble yourself, to go from the glory of heaven, to be born in a manger in the middle of nowhere, and entrust yourself to a couple of human beings to raise you. Think about the courage that takes to then live and continue to live in pursuit of righteousness and doing what is right before God when everyone around you is telling you you're wrong or you're crazy. And though you do what is right and you demonstrate your power, they all continue to reject you until you die. Naked and alone, suffering, torture. That's some real courage. And if we will meet Christ there, we actually will experience that resurrection power that comes because Christ did all that. Because He is not only man, but God as well. He could endure the very wrath of God the payment for our sin, and rise victorious. And He sends that same Spirit. That's His great promise, right? John says, I am symbolically washing you with this water. You, you change your heart attitude and look to God and you will be forgiven. And then Christ brings the reality that says, you know what, the way that really happens is because I am risen and if you will humble yourself, I will send My Spirit into your heart and wash you clean and give you new hope and lift you up that you might serve me. You know, it's a terrible story about the Dr. Semmelweis and, and his understanding of hand washing and medicine and all that. And it's such a terrible irony that he died of an infection, not unlike what he was trying to help those moms as they delivered to be saved from. It's a terrible irony for a human being, but it is actually the reality for Jesus. That the very thing He came to save us from is what killed Him. Your sin, my sin, our wrongness. Though He had done no wrong, He willingly took it upon Himself to suffer for us. And He was never a jerk about it. And if we understand Him right, He never berates us, but meets us and calls to us. To, he interrupts us 
and says we need to change, and he offers cleansing, and he says, do you have the courage to walk with me? Do you have the courage to set aside your own interests? Do you have the courage to say you're wrong? Do you have the courage to serve? And, I, and I, I'm, I'm so thankful for all the times I've seen that. And I mentioned just a few of them. You know, the, 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 the courage to keep going when everything feels like it's kind of falling apart, right? To have that perspective that you know, our, our sound team had, our musicians today, uh, I, I know our, our kid men folks today had challenges as well. Like just, I'm sure there were challenges in other places. Everything is challenging. There's good and it's challenging. That's always going to be the case, brothers and sisters, until Jesus comes back. And the promise that he makes is you can have a taste of that perfection of the future now. You can have a taste of that as you humble yourself and find the courage in him to press on. Because he's going to come again. And the good news is, at that point, we will never be wrong again. We will be completely and utterly restored and made right. And there will be no more pain and no more sorrow. And meanwhile, he calls us to some change. He calls us to cleansing. And he calls us to this courage. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy that you meet us here because Jesus has humbled himself. Would you lift us up? Would you let us hear those words of yours of forgiveness, of acceptance? Would you let us experience the power that you alone have to set us free from the sin that so easily entangles us? Would you, Lord, this Christmas season, give us a space and a time, each of us, apart to listen to what you have to say? And we pray that you would do that in Jesus' mighty name.